On this episode, I'm in the room with pastor and church planner C.B. Barthlow. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 83. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley, and for those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Today I'm talking with pastor and Denver church planter C.B. Barthlow. Just over a year ago, C.B. planted a church called Beacon in downtown Denver. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but trying to plant and pastor a brand new church in the midst of a pandemic and the most difficult season of social and political unrest in our generation presents significant challenges. And if that wasn't enough for us to talk about, C.B.'s life prior to planting is an even greater testament to God's grace. God brought him through years of addiction and from the very brink of taking his own life to transforming faith and sobriety. CB has become one of the best husbands and fathers I know, and it has been such a blessing to be friends with him for the past two years, as he's just this steady stream of encouragement for me personally. I also trust that you're going to be encouraged by our conversation. So why don't you come on in the room for my conversation with CB Barthlow. Well, your story is an amazing testament, one of the most amazing testaments I've ever heard to God's power to transform any life. I remember the first time you shared with me how you came to faith and what how God had moved in your life. And uh, I, I want as many people as possible to hear that story. And so tell me a little bit about how you came to faith and what that process and journey was for you. Sure. Um, I was raised raised in the church like a lot of people, but it was like a quiet evangelical church. So mm-hmm. Uh, there every Sunday, but didn't, you know, couldn't tell you any of the books of the Bible, couldn't really speak on any deep uh, relationship with God. And then I walked really, really far away. Like a lot of folks whose faith is not, maybe not rooted well when they're young. Um, I was tossed to and fro. So college and young adults was, was sex, drugs, and rock and roll for me for quite a while. Um, But by the grace of God in that time, I also got married, went to college, got a couple degrees and had two beautiful kids. Um, but I developed a pretty severe addiction mm-hmm. so that, you know, the last chunk of my pre Jesus days was, was crystal meth all day for almost, almost five years. Um, so as an, I'm, as I'm not meth- an expert on meth. Do most people do meth for five years straight and come out the other side? No, man, most people do meth forever or at least until they die or go to jail. Yeah. Um, and I just fell into it, man. I mean, I was a musician, so, you know, it was cocaine and that was cool. Yeah. And then, um, and then I started making my own crack, which is yeah. way less cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a ton of fame and vanity and crack. Um, yeah. But I, I had a, I had a late night show one night and, um, my usual drug dealer just didn't have any of what I wanted. And he said, and I was way hung over and he said, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't what you want meth, but this will get you through the night. Yeah. So I used meth for the first time. And then it was the only drug I did for the next five years. Wow. And at the end, um, of that addiction, I, I lost my wife. I lost my job. Uh, I lost my band, my friends, mm-hmm. and I was down to, you know, one night a week with my sons. So there were four and four and two at the time. Yeah. And my, my ex-wife had agreed, you know, like she'd bring them over. And the deal was I would make them dinner, put them to bed, take them to daycare in the morning. Like yeah. that was, 
That was the most responsibility she was affording me to have. Yeah. And so on those days, I was desperately trying not to get high. Um, and so I remember it was, it was May 4th. She brought him over and I put him in their pajamas, you know, you know, little footy pajamas, oh, right? Yeah. Like there's just yep. every, it's like so ingrained in my memory. That's the cutest they've ever been. Yeah, right? totally. Um, and I made like single dad, uh, dinner du jour, like corn dogs. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I put on, they were in their phase, you know, kids go through phases with movies, right? They were in yep. their finding, finding Nemo phase. So okay. I put their, their DVD on. And, um, and I remember just sitting down on the couch and, you know, I hadn't used that day, which, which meant I was incredibly tired and totally full of anxiety, depression, just, you know, a mess. And so seeing my two boys sit down and eat, you know, the bare minimum, be entertained by the TV and then looked around my living room and saw like, you know, just drug paraphernalia. I hadn't washed the dishes in months you know, we had rats, we had roaches. I mean, this yeah. was a place, this was like a, a, a drug den. Yeah. And I remember just real quick having like a white light moment of like, yeah, their life is really bad with me. Yeah. Um, and I sort of got the notion that like, I need to get out of here. I need, I need to be away from them. And mm-hmm. I remember I sort of dozing in and out of consciousness, but I had made a plan that, that, that in the morning I was going to take them to daycare. And uh, then I'd come home and I had a garage and I was going to pull in that garage. I had some hope, hose and some duct tape and I was just going to put that hose in the exhaust pipe, yep. run it into the car and, and then just go to sleep. And it was interesting because, you know, if you've ever, ever been around people who've, who've had a tough time, suicidal ideation is one thing and it's, yeah. it can be quite common. Yeah. But one of the questions we ask when people are really struggling is, have you made a plan? And I right. had for the first time made a really concrete plan. Right. Um, and I started to weep. I remember sitting on the couch and I was weeping and I was weeping because I realized I was going to do it. Hmm. Like, I think the gravitas of the situation had hit me and I realized like it suddenly it was out of my hands tomorrow. I was going to die. Yeah. And I, uh, and I fell asleep crying and I couldn't tell you how, how long I was asleep for maybe 30 minutes or something. Um, but I woke up and these two boys, my sons are four and two they They're standing over the top of me and they're like nudging me awake. And, um, you know, that age is, is probably too young to really understand the details of what was going on. Yeah. But, but certainly old enough to ascertain, like, things are definitely different at dad's house. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think my four-year-old by that time was already processing some feelings of being unsafe yeah. around me. Mm-hmm. So I woke up, I sort of wiped the tears off, and I said, uh, you know, what's up, guys? And then they simultaneously, like, looked at each other. And then as though they had rehearsed it, looked at me, and then they just said, just keep swimming, daddy. Just keep swimming, daddy. And, um, you know, that's the line from the movie. And I remember, you know, when they said it, I felt the white, hot presence of God in the room. Yeah. And I, and I felt like he, he was there and he was using the only voices that could get to me in that moment. Yeah. And, and, and I really felt like he said, uh, yes, just keep swimming, but you are done doing the planning. I'm taking over from here. Yeah. And, and it was, it was powerful. Um, yeah, man. and I, you know, I got the kids to bed that night and I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning and I took them to, to daycare and on the way home, sort of that's when the rubber hits the road, right? I was yep. like, well, yep. okay, what's, what's going to happen? And I got a random phone call from an estranged family member who said, we got you to a bed in a inpatient treatment center. It's in Sundance, Utah. You leave in three hours. Wow. And I remember thinking like, 
okay, he's real. He's in control. I just need to, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just going to f- go with the flow. And, um, and every day since then has been that. That's been yeah. my life. Like, I was yeah. that close to death, and he stepped in, and he's just sort of taking over. And so even now, like, as a leader and as a pastor, I'm just sort of like, what, what do you, what do you what want to do? Because I, I remember you said I'm not good at any of this stuff, so yeah. you, do the, you do the stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's done, it's done a darn good job since then, you know? Yeah. When you, you know, I, I grew up in the church too, uh, as early back as I can remember. And, um, I think one thing I'm really thankful for is that like, uh, it took at a young age, like I was, I was, it was a, I had very real experience with the presence of God at a very young age and didn't walk faithfully, you know, throughout the entirety of it. And it's strengthened and grown with time for sure, but it definitely took for me at a young age. So I wonder at all, when you think back on being in church, when you were young, was there a, like, what, what was the disconnect for you? Was it that, you know, it's common that a lot of families attend church because they go to church, but it's not really prevalent in, in their home. Was that the situation for you? Or like, have you ever thought like, why don't you think that took at a young age? Was it something about the church or the family dynamic? Or was it just like, it wasn't, God's timing for you. Yeah. You know, without throwing my parents under the bus, it might be the family dynamic. I think faith, faith was understood. Um, but I don't like assumed almost like, yeah. Yeah. And my mom knows the word. My mother knows the word. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember being discipled much. Right. In, in many of the things I'm trying to do with my sons today is like, you know, motivating myself to do devotions for my sons. Yeah. Um, and I think that that maybe is part of the disconnect. And it's one of the things that we try to challenge the people in our church. Yeah. Um, and yet here's the beauty is that, you know, as looking back, looking back into my youth, um, I've now been able to sort of remember instances in my life where God sort of surpassed some of those failings or those faults. Right. There were moments where I had people, young cousins of mine and they said, Oh, when we were little, you told everybody we we're going to be a pastor. Hmm. There was a moment I went to a concert with my mom one time and I asked her if I could go down to the altar and pray for a man. Yeah. And he was weeping, you know, so there's just moments where, you know, I, I just think when you belong to God, you're, you're sort of his, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and even though I, I probably was as disinterested as you could get as a young person and as, uh, opposing to God, as a young adult, mm-hmm. he, he's still undefeated. Yeah. You know? It's good. Yeah. So when you think about what your experience was as a kid and then being an addict and uh, not a dad who was exactly clicking on all cylinders <laughs> in those early years, mm-hmm. what, what's, what, what kind of concrete adjustments have you made on the dad front? Like what are, what are the things that you now really seek to prioritize with them or rituals or practices that are regular for you guys now by way of your intentional investment in them? Yeah. I mean, aside from not doing drugs, cause that one starts. That's a big right? one. Yeah. Uh, that's key. I, I'll to be honest with you. You know, I think God's been gracious in me in the sense that I've been able to, um, and much of this is due to the work that my wife has done with me. And I say yeah. work because she's, she's put in the hours. Yeah. Um, but it's been a function of sort of losing, losing my temper. That's gone away. There's a certain sense of peace that I've tried to instill and learn from my wife that we mm-hmm. walk in. Um, you know, we, we try to make faith real. Um, in my ministry life, we try to make sure that the boys know that they're first. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I, and I think that those are all obvious. I think ultimately most anybody who's really trying to be in uh, their faith and in their children's lives are trying yeah. to do that. Yeah. The one thing that I think that we're doing well is uh, complete transparency in this mm. family. So my sons can tell you the story about Just Keep Swimming yep. much better than I can. They know everything. They know all about dad's mistakes and every failing. They know how sick he was, the extent to it. They know why my first marriage failed. They know who was to blame. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to do everything I can to sort of paint as accurate a picture of who I was before Jesus. Yeah. So that the picture of God's power can be as accurate as it can. That's good. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've come a long way in those years and now you plant. So Beacon is now, you guys are just over a year old, right? Right. Yeah. So just over a year. So you guys are even a little bit younger than what Ridgeline is in the midst of all this craziness that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, but what was your personal, as I've heard people tell the story of how God called them into ministry and called them to plant a church. Tell me about your experience with God calling you to start Beacon in particular. Sure. Uh, it, all, all of it, I think accidental, but, you know, when I, when I was first getting sober, I, started, I went to a mega church because uh, I had kids and they had good kids ministry. That's right. And um, I started to do, I was a musician. So I joined the praise team and I, within a year or so I was leading praise and worship at this really big church. And, um, and I was worshiping from a real place of truth. God was, God was sort of healing me on the stage in front of people, which I think, right. which I think resonates with a lot of folks, right? Yeah. It, there was, there was no performance when I was crying, I was a bubbling mess. Right. And, and about a year into that, the pastor at that church said, we should go to coffee. We went and got coffee and he said, um, I think you're called to preach. And I remember at the, the, the coffee meeting, I, I told him, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and I had to, yeah. you know, apologize because yeah. that's, that's rude, right? right. And, um, and, and the reason I said it is because I had actually, up until that point, never even believed that full-time ministry was a vocation. I didn't know pastors, like, I didn't know that was a job. Yeah. Um, I just didn't. It never crossed. I mean, he could have just as easily told me, I think you're called to be a trapeze artist. And they would have right. sounded similarly insane. And yep. so I was one year sober living in my parents' basement with my last unemployment check coming. Okay. So that was, that was like his crazy plan was better than I had. Right. Like oh, I didn't yeah. have, so I just kind of followed this guy, um, listened to him, carried his Bible, helped him prepare messages. Um, and over the course of my ministry, you know, I had a leader who really saw something in me I didn't see. Yeah. And about a year into it, he started to speak this vision of a church in my heart. And as crazy as the idea of being a preacher sounded, when he said, I think you're called to plant a church, I don't know that there's ever been a bigger bell ring in my heart. Hmm. I mean, it was like, like immediately, like immediately, like oh. that is it. And I didn't even, I've never even heard the phrase plant a church before. Right, that. right. Now you and I are in the church planting world. That's like, you know, right. that's just everyday vernacular, but I never heard the phrase. But when he said it, it was like the, you know, the, the heavens opened up and the yeah. Lord had said, I know you've been waiting to find out what you're called to do. Well, here it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so ever since that day, we had been, my wife and I had been just dreaming of what it might look like for us to help a body of believers see Jesus like we had seen Jesus. Yeah. And that was the whole vision behind it is like, you know, we didn't know all the rules. Uh, we we're certainly blissfully unconnected in the church plant world. 
um, but I had some leaders that believed in us. And, and I believed that I had had such a personal, palpable, visceral encounter with God that um, I didn't care what it took. I was right. going to die so that other people could have the same thing. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, what has, you know, I think one of the only consistent threads through every church plant story <clears throat> is that it never goes the way you expect it to. And so there's the obvious thing of like when you guys planted just over a year ago, you didn't expect to shut down just months later uh, yeah. and go online and all that stuff. But, but aside from the obvious of uh, COVID, what has surprised you most uh, in this journey over the last year or so? You know, I, COVID obviously is our thing. Yeah. Um, and, I, if, and to be honest with you, if I remove the COVID pandemic from our first year planting, I will say that the things that surprised me are all positive. Um, we, we have been, God has been so good. And it's probably because he knows me and he knows my, my faint heart mm-hmm. that, um, that if I had to suffer big, I might, I might wilt. Um, but I would say that the things that really surprised have been just, just, how, just how real he's willing to be. Mm-hmm. Um, like how, how big God's really willing to show off if... I really fully trust him in a crazy way. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the challenges as leaders is we're called to lead people in faith. Mm-hmm. And what that means is he's going to stretch us first. Yeah. Um, and as he stretched me this year, you know, he's shown up in such a fashion that I've been like, wow, you know, if I didn't believe yesterday, there's no way I can't believe now. Right. Um, then the other thing is that I think God, God has also shown me that people, people really do want to rise, rise to the occasion. Hmm. Um, you know, when, when called upon to do incredible things, yeah, some people will shy away. Their yep. motives will be questioned. Some people who will promise things will weigh under the liver. And yet there's also this group of people who will show up and you're like, my God, all of a sudden the Acts to church comes alive in front of you. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's breathtaking, yeah. you know, to see people, man, to really see people fall in love with the King. Yeah. Uh, and then like knock down the gates of hell for him too. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's little things, of course, little disappointments here and there, but nothing to the, that would even compare to, to those, to those, man. Yeah. 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 What, I mean, what had, I mean, one thing I do, I always love about when we talk is there are, there's this culture within a lot of, uh, pastoral relationships, uh, that is, that that the suffering is worn like a badge of honor. And so a lot of the time when I get around pastors, it's, it's basically like a lot of complaining and, uh, and I I don't want to sound insensitive because I mean, it's hard. And this last year has been hard for me. And there are uh, things that we appropriately need to lament and lean on one another about, but, but I'm talking about something different where it's just like, this woe is me. This is the hardest, most miserable thing I've ever done that you just walk away getting the sense of like, why, in the H, are you a pastor then? <laughs> yeah, you don't totally. seem to enjoy this much. And so every time we talk, I love that, that you, that's never your tone. And, and that said, I know that there has still been things that have been hard and have stretched you personally. Mm-hmm. And so when you mm-hmm. think about that, what are maybe one or two things that have been the most, even if it's not like crushing, painful, but just uncomfortable stretching areas that you've had to grow when, over sure. the last year, year and a half? 
Well, well, first, let me tell you, I, I, before I answer that, because I think it's perfect that you admit it, that like we pastors, like we love to play our violin, right? Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> oh, it's yeah. so bad. And so sometimes when I, you're one of the few friends that I have that like, I feel like I can tell you what's really going on in my heart. Because yeah. a lot of times it's really good. Yep. And I feel guilty around other totally. pastors. I completely like, get that. Their life is just a disaster. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man, like you'll never believe what God is doing. I feel so yeah. naive. I feel yep. so kind of pink cloudish, right? Um, and yet, and part of that probably comes per, per, from perspective. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you nearly die, being alive every yep. day is like the best thing ever, Yeah, right? for real. But that's it. It doesn't mean that I'm immune from, from real things. And I think I, I will say June um, June was the hardest month of my ministry life when, okay. when our national conversation changed towards racial uh, justice. Yeah, uh, it was hard for me. And what was interesting is, I never thought it would be. Um, I, I got I got my master's degree in public administration, wrote a thesis on reparations. I studied African American history. I yeah. loved this. I went. I, I did a course under Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. I studied mm-hmm. from Cornell West. I mean, I like, this was my thing. So if yeah. any little white pastor dude in a city was called for this, it was for me. And when it happened, um, suddenly I realized I was the main guy at my church. I wasn't the young guy at my church who was afforded the opportunity to spout off and then be governed by his leader. I was the leader of an entire body of believers. Right. And and it was really stressful. Yeah. Um, just making sure that my motives were right, that I was always pointing to Jesus, that I wasn't overly sensitive and yet not sensitive enough. Yeah. You know, those, that was, I mean, that, that was a nearly an impossible month to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I got to come and, and preach at Beacon, which was an amazing experience for me. It's a very, very special group of people and, uh, and it's very multicultural. Uh, one of the most multicultural places that I've preached for sure. And so tell me about that. Like, what has it been like to lead through this? You have people, you know, it's one thing when, you know, I'm in Utah, which is about one of the whitest places on the planet. Uh, I am thankful for, you know, we don't have an exclusively white church, um, but we're not nearly as multicultural as what Beacon would be. You guys are right in the heart of downtown Denver. So it's just a very different environment. So the instruction that I do with my church is, is different in tone. The experience in my church might be very um, felt deeply by a few, but for the most part, it's a lot of young white kids who have not had to experience so much personally of what this national conversation is about. That's not your story. You're married to a Hispanic woman for one Mm -hmm. thing. And then a huge percentage of your church is not white. And so what has it meant for you to lead through this season? Um, That's a hard question. You know, I, I think we're multicultural um, because I, I won't, I don't want to pastor anything other than multicultural. Um, I deliberately go after people from all walks of life. That's what I'm attracted yeah. to. I love to be around that. Um, and and leading in this season for me has meant simply listening way more than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the challenges for many of us who think we operate well in, in a diverse or inclusive world is thinking we've got it. Yeah. And if, if you're white, you don't. Yeah. 
you, you don't have it. You don't understand it. You have a glimpse of it. You've had a taste. You've been atten- you've attended a dinner, but you, yeah. you have no idea what it's like to live those experiences. And so our church, you know, we have a huge population of our church who are dreamers. These are kids who've been brought over right. um, from Mexico or Latin American country um, who don't have citizenship. And many of them are now married, having kids, navigating jobs, buying their first home, and trying to do with citizenship. And as all of that goes on around them, right? So, so my challenge with them has just been sitting and really hearing what it means. Yeah. We have young African Americans who have invited me to the front lines of the protest. And, uh, and for that, it's just been listening to them, you know, tell me what their frustration is with every church that they've been to here too for. Yeah. And just letting them say it to someone who's white because they haven't been allowed to say it yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm finding that the best thing I can do in this season is listen. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because my job is to speak. Yeah. Right. Um, but I, as I've listened, what has happened is me in me is that my, my, my opinions haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, my ideology hasn't shifted. Um, and my teaching hasn't changed either, but what has happened is my heart yeah. has grown yeah. for the people I serve to better resemble the heart of the father for them. Which, which I bet then also informs very much the tone with which you communicate the things that you've always believed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? So we're, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a planner. So I, my, my, um, preaching schedule is planned out one year in advance. Yeah. So I don't preach on Sunday based on something I discovered or encountered on a Monday or a Wednesday. Right. Right. So during the middle of June, I'm preaching through Gideon. And what I'm finding is, Hey, you know, there's a lot in Gideon that matches this perfectly. Yeah. I just wouldn't have seen it if I wasn't listening well. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. So part of it is, 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 um, it's bringing, because the word is alive, it's bringing a part of the word to life that I didn't know was in there yet. Yeah. 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 I think that acknowledgement you mentioned a few minutes ago about, especially if you are white and part of a majority period, but a majority race it is acknowledging and understanding that you don't understand. And I had lunch with a pastor friend here in Salt Lake, uh, who's African-American. And uh, I was telling him it was before I had restarted in the room and I was thinking about doing a, a separate uh, podcast project that was going to be me interviewing exclusively African-American leaders or leaders of color with the hopes of better understanding uh, and being able to empathize. And uh, so I was sharing this with him. He was very encouraging about it, but I had said, you know, my intent is, is empathy to really want to grow in that and help others grow in that as, as well. And he was so uh, gentle and kind in the way that he said it, but he said, you know what? I really don't think that you can have that. Um, that you can't, you'll, because it's, it's never going to be your experience, even if you understand it deeply secondhand and you care and your heart breaks for it, it won't be empathy in the, in the deepest sense of that word. And I, that was a really instructive moment for me to just be able to be like, cool and own that and live from that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's incredibly valuable. I think one of the challenges that we do as a majority race or let's just say as white, as white men is um, we often try to study, try to encounter, try to engage with these new, um, these new ideas or these new people groups. 
And then once we've had what we believe to be sort of a surveys course or cursory mm-hmm. understanding, we make the whole group a monolith. Yeah. And, and then we, we know them. Sure. And the truth is, is that, you know, trauma is, trauma is experienced differently by every single person, totally. even if it's the same trauma, right? Yep. And, and so sometimes we, we think we get a pass. We think we're down because we have a one black friend or we have right. a black church and we're like, right. look, man, like, you know, no one gets you like I get you. Right. And there could be nothing further from the truth in a statement right. like that, right? So finding for me is like, um, the more I meet, the less I know, mm-hmm. the more I just love. Yeah. The more I just love, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, a, a, a big thing complicating all of this right now is just the overarching political climate that we're in with an impending election and probably the most um, contentious election in our generation would be my guess. Uh, based yeah, on certainly for own. our generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when, when I was wondering what posture you've taken uh, pastorally when it comes to not just the election, but just the political division, the political discourse. You know, I made a distinction a couple of weeks ago before my message that just because an issue has been politicized does not mean it's inherently political, um, that there are issues that are inherently biblical. And I would argue that this issue of justice, racial justice in particular, is not first and foremost a political issue. It's a biblical issue that has been politicized. Sure. But there are different approaches that pastors take in the midst of this. Some speak into everything and it feels you know, more like social commentary than it does anything. Some mm-hmm. are silent on, on the whole topic whatsoever. And so I just wonder what posture you've chosen to take within your church, what things you've spoken to, how do you choose what to speak into and what to, you know, to not say anything about? Does it come into your preaching? Just talk to me about your posture politically. Yeah. Like I said, you know, my, my sermon schedules are planned out. And so yeah. I let, I really let the word tell me what to say. And, um, on occasion when the word has room for me to comment on the social issue of the day, yeah. um, I'll address it when it lines up with the gospel. Yeah. Right. Um, which is interesting. Cause you know, I always thought I was going to be a guy on the front line. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not like, I'm, I'm a guy in the word mm-hmm. and, and so I allow it to sort of inform my preaching when it's appropriate, when it's gospel, when it doesn't miss the text in context. Mm-hmm. Right? On the other end, my public platform is pretty obviously aligned with um, my political ideologies, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's clear which side of the protests I'm on. It's clear right. what are, where I'm on on immigration issues. And I think that the two can be, and for me, they should be separate. Mm-hmm. I think I'm allowed to preach on Sundays to the word because my congregation came to hear the word. Yeah. Um, I came to hear the word, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that's where it's aligned there. On the other end, my social, um, my social persona, my friend persona, when people have coffee with me, they didn't just come to hear the word. Yeah. They came, they came to encounter me. And yeah. so a great portion of me is the word, but then a great portion of me is how can I help make, make black lives matter? How can I do immigration yeah. reform? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's not an either, or I'm neither silent nor so totally involved in the, in the, the conversation of the day. Yeah. Um, and yet I don't believe that there's any ambiguity. And I think one of the things that's best encouraged me here is I, I started to reach out to African-American members of our church and said, I'm your pastor. What have I missed? Mm, have, I done, have I done too little? 
Mm-hmm. Have I been too quiet? What are you mad at me about? What are you, you know, like yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. And every single person said, right where you are, just stay right there. Good. And I, and I thought, okay, what that means is, is uh, I'm doing, I'm listening. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. that's what it meant to me. It meant that I was listening and that I was, I was in the conversation, but maybe not steamrolling it and not ignoring it. Yeah. I love that. I keep having this, this strange experience. Um, and I've basically like, I still have an account and everything, but I've like gone off Facebook because of this experience. Cause for some reason, Facebook is just the cesspool. Uh, and every time I go into it, I, I experience this. I read posts and I see all of this vitriol and so much of the discourse that's taking place online, whether it's about politics or social issues or even theology. And I walk away uh, very discouraged about the state of the big C church in America to the extent that I'm no longer comfortable identifying as an evangelical because of the political implications of that and the assumption that people who are outside of the church, what, what they, when, what they assume when they hear that word. And Mm -hmm. so I just get to this point where I'm like, golly, I just can't stand where the big C church is at right now. But I love my church that God lets me pastor. We just are blessed with amazing people that I love so much. And so I just have this weird tension where I'm like, I don't even know if I want to be a pastor anymore. I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore because I just don't want to live in that. But man, I love this thing that God's entrusted to me. Yeah. And so when, when, you, when you reflect on what you're seeing, not, not even in culture, but specifically what you're seeing within the big C church right now, uh, two questions. One, what do you see that really concerns you? And then what do you see that gives you hope? Sure. Um, what concerns me is the, the muddiness between our faith and our patriotism. Yeah. I, to be honest with you, like that connection, first of all, I don't understand it. I never, I never even, I never thought that was a thing. Yeah. Um, I actually thought it was kind of a joke. Like I yeah. thought we used to make fun of people who said America, you know, like right, right, right. As, as just a really secluded sort of hillbilly group somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And, and yet what I'm seeing nationwide is it's God and country. It's yep. Jesus and the Bible. It's my guns and my president. And, yeah. and I think the, the problem with that is um, it's so blatantly a trick on the body of Christ by the yeah. enemy. Yeah. Like it's so perfectly a trick yep. that, and it's so, it's so obvious yeah. that I'm shocked we didn't see it. Yeah. Um, he is, the devil has fooled us into talking about everything but Jesus's love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, that part is like, good grief. Yeah. Either he's, I, go ahead. I just, I don't think, I don't think that I understood how muddy those waters were either until probably about a year ago, I think was the first time I said in a message, something to the effect of one of the greatest problems that we're facing right now as the big C church in America is that we are far more American than we are Christian. Sure. And I said sure. that like, duh. <laughs> and, and then I got not so much uh, in my own little bit in my own church, but then as I've had opportunities to be a couple of, in a couple of other environments and to speak and to say, to, to speak that same sentiment, there is two, two responses. One is this like confusion, like, what do you mean? Cause they don't even see the difference. 
Yeah, right. They're married. Yeah. And then the other is this very like deep, angry response to as if I had attacked your faith. Sure. (laughs) When that shouldn't be an indictment on anyone's faith. We we shouldn't we should not confuse our Americanism with our being Christians and followers sure. of Jesus. But yeah, I totally agree. I, I was unaware the extent to which that was the case until the last 12 months as it's become more and more apparent. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's a little, it's saddening, I would it say. Is. But what, what gives me hope is, um, is that there's a generation just younger than you and I, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I think get it. Like they finally yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, I've got, I'm blessed to have a young church yeah. and you know, like any young generation, there's some refining, there's some teaching, there's some yep. things where, you know, they err on the side of eh, that's actually sinful. So let's not celebrate yeah. that just yet. Right. But, but there is a compassion in the next generation. There's an altruism in the next generation. There is an embrace of the Eastern Christianity yeah. that Paul and the disciples remember like Christianity is not a Western religion. It's an right. Eastern religion. Right? right. And, and the whole model of the first church and the whole model of all of the nation of Israel, yeah. it, it's all about the other. It's all community. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this next generation really sees it like that really thinks like that. And there are some things that I've had to learn and then I try to teach and they're like, yeah, pastor, we get it. Like, don't worry. Everybody here is taking care of everybody. Right. And that gives me hope because, because the issues where they, they need some direction on are just where they're classically being enticed by the world and its vices. And I know God's good at teaching people away from those things and calling them out of sin but I have not seen people really embrace being called out of what they believe to be righteous, even when it's not. Yeah. It's good. You know? Yep, yeah, totally. Well, I, I want to end uh, on this note, talking just a little bit about what the whole COVID thing has been just for you on the personal front. Um, because you're, we have talked a little bit about this, but I want to dig in just a little bit more personally on it. You're one of the only pastors I've talked to in the last seven, eight months who, um, and you, you always say it with this little like kind of check in your tone uh, of like, you're not a hundred percent certain if this is right or okay, or if you're missing something, but by and large COVID quarantine, the shutdown has not been devastating to you personally no. that no. you have, uh, you're, I mean, genuinely one of the only people I met where I, where I think I'm probably not out of line in saying that in many ways and on many fronts, you have thrived over the last seven, eight months, despite having, you know, hard days here and there. I know all that, but I was wondering, I mean, just, just talk about that. Cause I don't, I don't feel like I know you well enough to know, like my assumption has been anybody who's doing awesome right now is just like super emotionally detached. <laughs> that's the only, cause you're just like numb, but that's not who you are at all. You're emotionally healthy. You think deeply, you reflect on your life. You have a baller wife who would call you out if you tried any of that stuff. And so just tell me personally what this year has been like for you. And do you have any theory as to why aside from, yeah, God's just been gracious to you over this year in a unique way. So I think it's good that we end this way because I think it takes the whole conversation full circle, which is, I really do think this is a conversation about perspective. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I think that's I'm good. not, I'm not supposed to be here. Like, yeah. I'm supposed to be dead. Yeah. And even if I didn't take my own life on that night when my son saved it, 
um, if I was going the way I was going, I was going to, I was going to die from my addiction or I was going to be in jail. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm not, which is like, that's all kind of, I ever wanted. Like I just, I get to be alive. Now bonus is like, I also get to be a dad bonus Mm -hmm. is I got like, I got a baller wife bonus is like, my job is to tell people about Jesus. Right. And, and that never, never loses my attention. Yeah. Like that I get to walk over to my desk in my home office and look at this Bible that you gave me. It's the Bible we preach to our church room and that I get to like, this is what I do. This is it. It never leaves my mind. So I do believe what Paul says, we get transformed from glory to glory. Like I really believe that like everything I'm in now is better than what I deserve. And even if the world says it's bad, God didn't say it was bad. God's yeah. not confused by COVID. God's not yeah. worried about Beacon. God's not worried about the global church. Right. He's doing something the whole way through. Yeah. And I don't have a sense that God's having a rough day during this. Right. Yeah. I, I just don't. I don't, have, yeah. I don't have a sense that he's up there and he's like, gosh, darn it. They're all divided down and this election's right. going to be trouble. Right. I, don't, I don't sense that. What I sense is that he sees it differently. And so my whole goal is like, I just want to see it like him. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah I mean, we, we've been... Bless, I've never been closer to my wife than I am this year. My oldest son got to go through his big year of puberty this year. Like yeah. one year ago, he's like short, sweet, high-pitched voice. And he's yep. a full-on man this yeah, year. Yeah. And I, I got to and I got to be with him like every single day because of it. And I, yeah. I mean, what a great gift for him to ask me those like real questions. You yeah. know what I mean? Totally. So I don't, I just look at the whole thing like, if my God's not worried, mm-hmm. why would I be? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I do. I love that. I, I think, you know, I think this is, this has had a, a, a big impact on me personally. You know, it's been, there's been days and weeks that have been really hard. I'm personally in a season right now over the last couple of weeks where I'm feeling kind of weary uh, for a, a lot of different reasons. It's not just COVID related. Um, but I, I do think like I, I have no, no fear. Like I'm not coming out of this, you know, or I'm, I'm going to come out. I'm, I'm not going to be a pastor at the end of this, or my church isn't going to exist at the end of this. Barna saying at least one out of five uh, churches will close as a result of this, which is probably generous. It, I'd say I generous. There's probably going to be more. Yeah. And, uh, and so what has given me perspective is different than what gave you perspective, but I planted a church before I did two years of the, the most hellish ministry imaginable for me personally Mm-hmm. Uh, God was doing this like really painful, deep work in me. And so just the fact that I'm not where I was, even though sure. I, I wasn't an addict, I, I didn't have, I don't have the same story, but I'm not where I was. So it's a blessing to be where I am. I'm very thankful for that, per, that perspective in the midst of this. But I just had, I was, I was thinking about, as you were talking, what would you say to someone who doesn't have, has not had your experience, hasn't had my experience for whatever reason might be lacking some of the perspective and, and all they see are dark clouds and no end in sight. How, how if you have not had that, maybe this is it, this is, this is the season that God's using to develop that perspective. But is there anything that you would say to someone who maybe is lacking that perspective that you're talking about? So good. Um, I, I think I, I, one is I, I always rely on, on, you know, you have a few Bible verses that you just have in your back pocket and they're like, God just brings them yep. out to you. Right. Like yep. I always consider when Jesus says, consider the birds of the air, 
They neither reap nor sow nor store grain in barns. And yet your father in heaven takes care of them. What makes you think? Yeah. Right. Um, and I think I always ask myself that. And so I might challenge somebody who doesn't have, maybe doesn't have that same perspective, which yeah. is like, what makes you think mm-hmm. that he would do greatness in the lives of the birds or the livestock or even just other random people, but you, uh, he's taking his hand off. Yeah, that's good, man. Right? Um, that, that one always gets me sort of out of my own funk. Because we yeah. all have funk, no matter how rosy yeah. you are. Yeah. Right? So I think part of it is just what makes you think? Like, why do you think that, that you don't get it? Because yeah. you get it, man. Yeah. Like, he's, he's so good, you know? Yeah. Well, the, uh, I've paid you this compliment before, and I'm going to keep paying it to you because uh, I really, really mean it. And it, it's, a, it's a really, uh, I think, the highest compliment that I, I can pay anyone. And, and my favorite thing about you is every time we've talked, and I've heard half these stories from you before. You've preached in my church, and uh, we're friends, and so I know your story. But every time I'm around you, whether it's on the phone, via text message, or we get the chat like this, I always walk away thinking, I want to know God like that guy. Mm, and, thank you, man. Um, and I know that's a grace in your life that you don't take responsibility for, but I, I walk away praying, God, help me to know you more deeply and more intimately and more powerfully. And it's just so evident to me that you don't do almost anything without being pretty confident you've, you've heard God speak to you on that matter. And I yeah. think one of the, that's one of the most tremendous redeeming gifts that God gave you coming out of years of addiction is that you live. And I don't think I'd actually made that connection until listening to you again today, that because of the way that you started into faith, which was just this like totally busted open, completely desperate, God, I, I literally don't know what to do for my next step. And God just had to make, like, take you by the hand, step by step, every day. And the way that that has informed how you pastor, how you pray, how you preach, how you friend, how you husband, how you dad is amazing and, um, and inspires me and encourages me. And so don't stop talking about the good stuff. And if COVID doesn't crush you, don't feel bad talking about that because people, people need to hear about the way you know God, because the rest of us need to know him that way too. Uh, thanks, Ben. That really encourages me. If you can cut that piece out and just send it to me so I can listen to it on my bad days, yeah. that would really help me. Yeah. You do text me every time you're having a bad day, and I'll just send you that clip back over. Oh, I love it. That's perfect. No, th- thank you. That encourages me. I, I, I truly believe you know, we in the early days, well, in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you remember there was a slogan in Christianity. It was cliche and trite, but we all used yeah. it. It was relationship over religion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It captivated me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we said it so many times we failed to realize what it was. Like yeah. he, he said he's closer than a brother. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to know him in his fullness and in his suffering. I want to be like John. I want to lay on his on his breast. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to know I want to know what he smells like. I want to know what he sounds like. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's my, I mean, that's my unending desire is to do that and, and bring other people along on the journey. Cause once you really taste and see, mm-hmm. dude, nothing is the same. Yeah, that's true, man. Yeah. And you're doing, you're doing a great job of that. And I love you a Thanks, lot friend. and uh, Thanks, I appreciate friend. you talking. Appreciate you too. Thanks for having me on friend.